Well, it's always a privilege to preach God's Word, and uh, once again, uh, I'm looking forward to sharing God's Word with you this morning, and uh, we're already on part 30 of this series. Uh, I can't believe it, but we are, we've come to the midpoint of Mark now, exactly in the middle, chapter 8, and uh, we've been looking at this um, gospel now for 30 weeks. I've called this message this morning, uh, The Great Discovery, and that's because it centers on the revelation of Jesus as the Christ, as Messiah, and we're going to look at that story uh, this morning. And I really trust it's going to be helpful for you and encourage you in your own walk, walk with the Lord. And I trust that if you don't know Christ, uh, if you've never acknowledged Him as Messiah, as Lord, that you will know Him as Messiah and Lord as I preach today. But we're going to look at chapter 8 from verse 27 through to verse 30. And then we're going to look at another section after that. Uh, but let's start with chapter 8, verse 27. It simply says, Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others say, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So here we are at the center of Mark's gospel, and um, we reach a significant turning point in the story that Mark is telling us. Uh, Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, which is outside of Galilee altogether. And it's not even under the rulership of Herod, but it's under the rulership of Philip, Herod's half-brother. And this town has got an amazing history, and uh, I've asked Andrew just to edit in some slides for you to see, um, just because the archaeology can really be helpful to, for us to understand. Um, in the oldest days, this town was called Balinas, because it was the center for Baal worship, uh, and so hence the name Balinas. And, and uh, the, the town is still to, to, to this day, um, known by another uh, title of Panias. And that's because for the Greeks, they believed that the Greek god Pan was born in this town on the hillside. There's a cave which was said to be the natural birthplace of the Greek god Pan. And there's a picture for you to have a look at as well. And also uh, on the hillside was the source of the River Jordan. There was a, a stream that people believed was the source of the River Jordan, which was significant, obviously, for Israel in their history. And at this uh, further um, archaeological thing is that there was a temple built of white, white marble by Philip to Caesar, to the godhead of Caesar. And as you know, Romans believed that Caesar was a god, that he was a deity. And so it's an incredible thought to me that in this place, surrounded by all of these influences and historical influences of this town, uh, that um, the disciples discover that this wandering Galilean carpenter that they've been following is in fact the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so um, I mentioned this, uh, the, 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 this was a center for Baal worship in the ancient times. Um, the River Jordan was uh, significant in Israel's history. And as those people came into the town and looked at this marble uh, temple, they would have been reminded at the power and authority of Rome 
who, and that they believed that their Caesar was a god. And so it's also not a surprise that the story comes right in the middle of Mark's gospel. It's really a peak moment, and it's a crisis moment in some ways for Jesus as well. Um, he knew for certain what lay ahead of him, that the cross lay ahead of him, and he knew that things couldn't carry on the way that they had been for much longer. And so the opposition that was, was coming against Jesus was coming to crescendo, and the Pharisees were getting ready to strike. And so Jesus was really confronted with a, a crucial issue. Um, had his ministry had any effect at all? Uh, had people really discovered who he was? Uh, if no one had grasped these things, then obviously all that he had taught, all that he'd done, the miracles that he'd demonstrated, and the lives that had been touched would have been for nothing. And so there was only one way, really, he could be confident that people had understood, is that if he had left his message written on their hearts and it had, and it had transformed their lives. And so at this point, he puts everything to the test, and he asks his disciples outright and says, who do you think that I am? And uh, there are three things that I'd like us to notice out of this little portion. And the first is this, that he invites the disciples to a personal and individual faith in him. Um, he finds out from the disciples and says, well, you know, people have been guessing who they think I am. And uh, we see in verse 28, they, they reply and say, well, some say, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets. But he presses them and he says, no, no, I'm not asking you to guess. Who do you say that I am? He, he presses them for an answer. In other words, the guesses around my identity are not enough. Uh, I, want you to know, I want you to understand and who do you think uh, that I am? And it's interesting that uh, he asks them all because the, the, the Greek here is plural. So when it says you, he's referring to all of them. But as the spokesman of the disciples, Peter answers, and he replies and he says, um, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the anointed king that the Old Testament has prophesied about. And so Jesus doesn't want them to speak about that. He acknowledges that and he, then he instructs them and says, keep quiet. I don't want you to say anything. But uh, it's true for all of us, you see, just as, as J Jesus wanted his disciples to come to a personal um, conviction of who he was, and have an individual faith in him, so too is it for, for all of us that believe by faith. We, we all have to come to see Jesus as Messiah for ourselves, and no one else can do that for us. We have to go through a journey where we recognize, yes, Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And it's, it's interesting just to think a little bit about the background of how um, Jewish people understood Messiah. Um, throughout their history, the Jews had never forgotten that they were in a very special way God's people and God's chosen people. And in the early history of the nation, they had tried to achieve that position through what I would call natural means. And so they had tried to conquer land and they viewed David as the, the greatest king and he was the pinnacle of, of, um, of, of the, their rulers. And so they dreamed of a time, obviously many years had passed since then, and they, they dreamed of a time when another king uh, a soldier king would arise in David's line and make them great in righteousness and power. And Isaiah 9 prophesies that and Jeremiah 22 verse 4. But as time went on, it became quite clear that that wasn't going to happen, that greatness was not going to come through a natural 
uh, political means. And so in the history of Israel, we see the 10 tribes of Judah are carried off to Babylon by the Syrians. Jerusalem is sacked and conquered, and the Jews are led, led off as captives. And after the Babylonians, the Syrians, came the Persians who ruled over Israel, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. So far from ever knowing their own personal kingdom and dominion, uh, for centuries Jewish, the Jewish nation had never known that kind of freedom, and they'd never known what it was like to be completely independent and free. And so although they remembered this amazing idea of the, the, king, the great King David and all that he achieved, they also began to dream of a day when God would intervene supernaturally and achieve by supernatural means what they couldn't achieve themselves. And so they expected Messiah to be a soldier king who would set them free as a nation. And so that's what they were expecting Messiah to be. Um, it's also worthwhile at this point to, to kind of think a little bit about how Jesus uh, viewed his ministry and that his messiahship shouldn't be revealed too soon. And so if you look at his ministry and in all of the Gospels, and particularly as we're studying Mark, uh, right from the beginning, when he sets someone free from demons, for example, the demons are commanded not to speak of who he is. So in Mark 1.25, for example, or Mark 3.12, they are either silenced, completely, or they're cast out, and they are told not to speak of who Jesus is. Uh, and it's not difficult to understand. Um, the testimony of demons has no value. Uh, you never listen to the devil, even when he speaks the truth. And so a testimony of a, of, of a demon is of, of no value at all. So Jesus commands them to keep quiet. It's interesting also that Jesus also commanded healed people not to reveal who he was. Uh, Mark 1.44 Mark 5:43, and later in chapter 8, verse 26. Uh, inv invariably, people didn't uh, adhere to that. They ignored what Jesus asked. But it was, it's not difficult to see why he asked that, because often when the people went and spoke about what he had done for, for them, it brought him into conflict with the Jewish authorities, and he wasn't looking for any conflict with anyone, um, particularly the Jewish authorities. He was never in a hurry to be famous, uh, he was never trying to draw attention to himself. And so anyone who started calling Jesus Messiah prematurely was more likely to do more harm than good. And as I've said, the Jewish nation had uh, the ideas about Messiahship which um, didn't fall into line of who Jesus was. They were expecting a soldier king to remove them from Roman rulership and to set them free. And then Jesus also, of his own disciples, expected them and asked them not to speak in a sort of, a, a sort of brash way about who he was, because they, they, themso they themselves had taken so long to understand who he really was. And we know that through the story of Mark. He's saying all the time, he's saying, uh, don't you understand? Don't you see? Don't you yet get who I am? Particularly with the miracles um, uh, of the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. And so in a very practical way, Jesus didn't want to identify with the current uh, Jewish view of who Messiah was. And so, so that's just a little bit uh, of the background of, of, um, of those things, and uh, that Jesus really did want his disciples to come to an individual understanding, an individual faith in him as Messiah. And secondly, 
Um, Jesus wanted the disciples to come to a clear faith concerning him as Messiah. Um, they had for a long time only grasped things dimly. They had understood, but not clearly. And we see that even also in John's gospel, for example, in John chapter 1, verse 41, and later in verse 49, when he first calls his disciples, it says this, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found his own brother Simon and said to him, come, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So right at the beginning, when the disciples are called, they do recognize Jesus. They recognize that this, this, he, they think he's the Messiah, but they're not clear about that. And it comes more and more clear to them as they walk with him and they live with him. And eventually we, the, this revelation comes here um, to them in Mark chapter 8. And also uh, in verse 49 of John chapter 1, Nathaniel, one of the other disciples, recognizes who Jesus is as well. But as I've said, initially the faith is muddled. It's a little bit kind of not, it's lacking clarity. Um, and so we see though in Mark's gospel that right from the beginning, Mark points out to us that Jesus is Messiah right from the very beginning. So for example, in Mark 1, 1, and again in verse 3, we see God speaking from heaven um, in, in verse 11, God speaks over his son, and Mark records it for us. And God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, throughout the gospel, the demons recognize Jesus for who he is. In chapter 1, verse 24, and chapter 5, verse 7. And then we notice also that Jesus begins to call himself the son of man. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 10, and in verse 28. And it doesn't convey much at first, the title, but uh, it begins to take on more meaning as, as the gospel unfolds. And so we see Jesus, he doesn't really talk about himself very much. His claims about who he is come rather through his manner of doing things and the implications of what he said and what he demonstrated through his life. Uh, in other words, his ministry said a lot without having excessive or premature claims about himself that he needed to make. And so we see even before Jesus is baptized, for example, um, he has great spiritual authority and obvious supernatural power. He overcomes the devil in the desert. He announces the kingdom has come. Um, he puts himself in a position of leadership and he calls people to be his disciples. And then he calls them apostles as he sends them out with authority and they go and demonstrate amazing things uh, in, into the surrounding area. And so... There's this obvious supernatural power that Jesus has. There's this obvious authority that he has. And then there's the amazing teaching that Jesus has. Um, he's called teacher, rabbi. And we see that on numerous occasions, it's, the Gospels say he taught. He, he, he taught with absolute authority, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. And so there's this amazing authority that Jesus had in his teaching. And he teaches about discipleship. He teaches about God's kingdom. He teaches about the tradition and the law and how he's come to fulfill the law. And he uses this phrase and that he implies, he says, other people are teaching the doctrines of men. And by implication, he's saying that what he, his, his teaching is really the doctrine of God. And so that puts him, puts him into opposition again with the Pharisees who, who kind of can't understand what he's saying. 
And then obviously, another area is that Jesus shows great power over the realm of evil. He casts out demons, and he implies through his life that he is one who is much stronger than Satan, and he's able to set free any who are held prisoner by Satan. In other words, again, he's claiming more by what he does than the titles that he gives himself. And he, he teaches and preaches as one who knows the will of God intimately well. Um, so he demonstrates that he's Lord over demons, he's Lord over disaster, he's Lord over the Sabbath, he's Lord over death, he's Lord over creation, he's Lord over disease, he's Lord over the wind, he's Lord over the weather, everything. And above all, he says, I have the ability to forgive sin and do away with sin. And so it is for the disciples that through all of these experiences that they have of Jesus, they hear his teaching, they see his, his life demonstrating great authority and power, and his persistence in asking them to open their ears and open their eyes to really pay attention to who he was and to perceive through what he demonstrated through creative miracles to thousands of people, eventually the disciples come to see he is Messiah more clearly than ever before. And so they have to come to that individually and personally. They have to be convinced of who he is as Messiah, the second thing. And then thirdly, once they've understood who he is as Messiah, they have to really understand what he needs to do with his life. And so I'm going to read you another portion because this is really, really sets the tone for the second half of Mark. He, they need to understand that he is fully walking towards the cross and embracing the cross for his life. So in verse 31 we read, Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and he must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. For what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. What becomes clear in this section, uh, right at the beginning in verse 31, is this phrase that I mentioned already that Jesus uses of himself, son of man, uh, it becomes clear here that it has a much higher meaning than just being used to mean a human being. Um, and I say that because the phrase son of man is taken from the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel has a vision in Daniel chapter 7 in, in the Old Testament. And in this vision, there's a human-like figure called son of, the son of man that... Um, comes to God and receives a kingdom from God. And so it's not used as a title in Daniel. It's simply used to describe this human figure. And the phrase, phrase simply means there, it simply means human being. And in Jesus' day, that wasn't used to refer to Messiah at all. Jesus uses it 
in a unique way. He uses it as a title for himself and he implies in the way that he uses it that the Son of God, the Messiah of Mark chapter 8, verse 29, is also the Son of Man, who is the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. And so when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he uh, makes it clear to us what he means by the term. And so he implies, um, when he's speaking to Peter, he picks up on what Peter said, and he implies that the Son of Man and Christ refer to the same person. And so he, we see this amazing statement that he makes, the Son of Man must suffer. And the amazing thing is that in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man rides upon the clouds of heaven in great glory and comes to God to receive a kingdom. And so it's a very triumphant um, image of someone coming in great power and authority to inherit a kingdom. But here Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer. And so what Jesus has done, he's put together this amazing figure of Daniel chapter 7 coming in glory and power alongside the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And what he's saying to his disciples is, the one who gets to glory like the figure in Daniel chapter 7 will do so by a suffering like a servant described in Isaiah 53. And so Jesus um, wants his, uh, uh, his disciples to understand this mission that he has and that it involves him going to the cross and going to suffer. Uh, and he insists that they understand that that's absolutely necessary. Um, I don't know if Peter felt that Jesus was a little depressed when he was saying all, that, all, all, all those things, but he, he calls Jesus aside and presumes to rebuke Jesus. Um, and then Jesus makes it quite clear that Peter has completely misunderstood, uh, that he can't ever avoid the cross, he's got to embrace the cross, and that Peter actually is a tool for the devil in uh, trying to get Jesus to avoid the cross. And so... Jesus made it quite clear. He insisted that they needed to understand the necessity of the cross in his own life and ministry. And then, do you notice that he also, finally, he also, Jesus insists upon the cross for all of us that want to know the glory of Christ in the same way that the cross was necessary for him. Uh, this is what I mean. There's an invitation on the second half of that portion that I read. There's an invitation that Jesus gives. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. And so what he's saying is there's an invitation to get to the glory of the resurrection, the glory that comes after that, but it has to come via the cross. And so um, we all are invited into that that journey with Jesus. So there's a personal invitation. Do you notice he says, whoever, it's a personal one. He makes it individually to all of us. And it's voluntary. It's not forced. Whoever of you want to be my disciple, let them take up their cross and follow me. In other words, for us to know the glory of Christ in our lives requires a serious change from us. It requires us to submit to God's discipline in our lives. And it involves us partnering with him for his kingdom. And so Jesus really, really presses this thought home again uh, to his disciples and to all of us. And he says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. In, in other words, there's only one way to get life from God. It's the only 
it's a, a way of seeing your life and the perspective of your life and seeing it with the right perspective and giving your life for others and for his kingdom. And so ultimately, Jesus is saying that all of us gain life from God as we give our lives away for the kingdom. And then finally, Jesus says, only those that acknowledge him will themselves be acknowledged on that final day of reward. Uh, he says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the angels. And so there's the challenge that Jesus brings right at the end to his disciples then and to each of us that walk by faith, that we too can share in the glory of uh, what he's doing in the world and in our, in our nation and through our lives, but it involves us taking up our calling, involves us taking up our cross, the thing that he's given us, and living that out to be a blessing to others. That's the way we gain our lives. And so I just want to end this morning with a simple encouragement challenge, perhaps um, two little things. Uh, the disciples had to realize for themselves in an individual way who Jesus was. They had to recognize that he was Messiah. They had to embrace the mission that he had for his life. So let me end by saying this. Who is Jesus to you? Perhaps you um, are watching this and, and you're, you're not a person of faith. Um, perhaps you're just watching out of curiosity. Perhaps you are someone who has been a Christian for, for many years. But all of us has to, uh, have to answer that question for ourselves. Who do I say that Jesus is? Am I still guessing who he might be? Do I just think, well, he's a good man, a moral teacher? Uh, or have I seen for myself that he's much, much more than that? He's God's son. He's Messiah. He's the fulfillment of what the Israelites were waiting for. The Bible says it's quite simple that once we recognize who Jesus is, we simply just have to ask him to come and dwell in our hearts by faith. And he's faithful to forgive us and he forgives our sin and he comes to dwell in us by his Holy Spirit. And we begin a journey with him where he begins to transform us step by step, day by day, that we become more and more like him. And that happens by faith, by simply believing on him and who he is and what he's done for us. So if you do know Jesus as Messiah, as Lord, my second challenge would be, well, what, what has he asked you to do? What, what, what has he called you to do? What is the cross? What is the thing that he's asked you to take up as you follow him? Uh, what awaits for you on the other side of that is glory and reward and honor. Uh, but Jesus had to go through the cross and take up the cross in order to come to that place of glory and honor. Uh, and so for all of us, there's something that he's calling us to do, calling us to take up, call, calling us to live out so that through our lives, his kingdom can come. What is that for you? It's different for all of us. Uh, but what has he called you to do for him? And are you doing it? Are you living it out? That's the great challenge. Is it transforming your life and transforming the lives of those around you? those that you love, your friends and your family. So I want to just pray as we finish. I want to pray for those <clears throat> that might not know Jesus, and then I want to pray for those that uh, are living out, want to live out their calling, uh, as God has called all of us to do. So let's just pray.
Jesus, I thank you that you call us all to walk by faith. And I thank you, Lord, that you've revealed yourself through the scripture. You've revealed yourself by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I just pray, Lord, that you would continue to reveal yourself to all of us in a deeper and deeper measure in our own hearts, that we might know you more and more clearly as, to, as, as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would transform our lives as we seek to honor you. Uh, and Father, I just pray for those that might not know you, this, uh, who are watching this today. I thank you that your word says that uh, all we need to do is to believe by faith, that you come and you dwell in our hearts by faith. And as we confess our sins, you are faithful to forgive and that you dwell in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so I pray for anyone that might be um, listening to this this morning uh, and that you would draw us, draw them by our, your Holy Spirit. Uh, I pray, Lord, that uh, as they recognize their need of you and they pray that simple prayer of asking you into their hearts, that you would come and dwell in their hearts by faith. And then I pray for the Lord for all of us as we are seeking to live out our calling. Uh, we thank you that you've called all of us. You've given us a task. You've given us something to bear in our lives that will bring glory to you and glory to your kingdom. And I pray, Lord, for that calling, that destiny, that thing that you've called us to take up, that each of us might know that, that we might be faithful in living out what you've called us to do. And Lord, that's only possible by the power of your Spirit. So I pray that you'd come. I pray that you would reveal to us and that we'll be faithful in taking that thing that you've given us to do and we would do it faithfully so that your kingdom might come and you might be glorified on earth as it is, as you are glorified in heaven. And I trust you, Lord, that you would seal these things in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, thank you for, for um, listening this morning, and I really trust that uh, you've been encouraged. God bless you, and I'll speak to you again soon. Have a great, great week.